Good morning, everybody. The temperature here in New York City is 37 degrees. Traffic is good. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, one of your hosts, Liel Leibowitz, joined, as ever, by my co-host, Tablet, title to be determined, Stephanie Batik. What's the title this week? I'm going with Deputy Editor Ameritrix. Um, That's where I am now. (laughs) Ameritrix, starring Keanu Reeves, Ameritrix 4. Our second co-host, Mark Oppenheimer, is... At home, in Oppenshire Manor, having gotten food poisoning from some, probably, I don't know, bad caviar or oysters or whatever they eat in Oppenshire Manor. Kosher and vegan, of course. Today on our show, our Jew of the Week is writer and cultural critic Bill Derestowitz. He is so, so brilliant and always a pleasure to talk to. He joins us to talk about his new essay collection, The End of Solitude, which is pretty much what I anticipated all throughout high school. Our Gentile of the Week is audiobook narrator and author Julia Whalen, whose voice you might recognize from one of the nearly 500 books that she's narrated. So if you listen to Gone Girl on your commute, that is the voice in your head. She joined us to talk about her own new novel. Thank you for listening. But before we get to any of that good stuff, Stephanie Butnick. I think we're alone now. What's going on? Okay, I want to tell you a story. It was a dark and stormy night. It was a Saturday night on the Upper West Side. (laughs) (laughs) The sun had set. Shabbos was over. Ben and I were out to dinner with new, like, couple friends, basically. And you know the stakes are high when you're sort of on these early friend dates type of thing. I'm sorry, the stakes could never be higher than new friends in your 30s and 40s. Yeah. It's like the most pressure you'll ever, because when you're eight, it's like, Oh, you like gum, I like gum too. We'll be best friends for life. When you're 40s, like, there is like a seven-page form that you need to fill out to see if we're compatible. And it's funny, this is an old camp friend of mine who I always really, really liked, reconnected with when I moved to the Upper West Side because she lived here. And this was the first time we're getting together with our husbands. And, and you know, like, it was a lot of pressure, right? Because it's like there's four people that all sort of need to like each other in this scenario. Anyway, dinner goes well. We're having fun. We're walking home. We stopped for ice cream after. I don't know. This is more detail than anyone needs. But um, like we went to a second location, basically, which is like how, you know, dinner went well. We're like, let's I think when you're young, when you're in your 20s, you leave dinner and you go to like a bar. (laughs) That's like that's laughably uh, in the past for me. When you're in the 30s, you go to the CVS to pick up your prescription. (laughs) Um, So we stopped for ice cream. We're walking home. And the husband, who's a wonderful guy, he says, you know, I have to tell you, I don't listen to unorthodox, but I have heard you on take one. (laughs) Sir, I I like you already. And I was like, say more about that. And basically, I love this. He was apologizing to me for not listening to Unorthodox. But he's like, but I have heard you on Take One. As listeners to Take One, your daily Talmud podcast know, I come on to talk about very, very, very random and specific things. Most Mm -hmm. recently, I was on talking about how much I love my (laughs) mother-in-law. Shout out to Wendy Cohen. I also talk about very specific things. He's like, yeah, no, I, I heard you talk about like men wearing sandals. And I'm like, you know what? I'm so glad I give my Talmudic wisdom to you on your show, because otherwise, how would people who, you know, I'm potentially going to be friend going to hear me talk about really important sacred subjects? But isn't it completely this is a great story. Thank you for sharing. But isn't it like also absolutely terrifying the notion that here you are like a normal person in the world and you're sitting for dinner with friends and all of a sudden you realize that they know you from this all entirely (laughs) different life that you totally forgot you have? Which is not really real to you because it's like work life is like, oh, yes, no, you're you're the woman who talks about men's feet. Well, it's funny because I'm used to people being like, oh, I feel like I know you from the show. That's not like a crazy thing. 
But that that was a different show, right? Like, like, it's just like, oh, God, what have I said on take one over the years? I have it even worse because my brain is set up in this way. I can't actually function unless I forget what I say the second we walk out of this studio. Because without it, like, it's a daily freaking show, yeah. take one, right? Without yeah. it, like, if I had to retain memory of every single one of the 7,336 episodes, like, my brain will just collapse. There'll be no room for worrying about the Mets and Scooby-Doo and other things I care deeply about. And so I totally forget. And then someone would be like, oh, my God, that thing you said about, and I'd be like, I, I, I said that? That is very lovely of me. That <laughs> sounds like something I might have said. Um, I want to share with you a story of what I did this weekend. I spent the weekend with not one, not two, not a couple, not a minion, but 2,900 Israeli Americans at the Israeli-American Council Annual <laughs> Fest in, of course, the other, other promised land, Austin, Texas, y'all. Okay, is there a 7-Eleven outpost there? Uh, there is 7-Eleven, uh, very startup nation. Of course, it's, it's amazing. So first of all, credit where credit's due. I went to the first conference of this organization eight years ago. It was like 300 people, super enthusiastic, whatever, small, Hamish, lovely, enough to fit in like, a smallish hotel convention center type mm. situation. Now they've literally taken over the entire city of Austin, which is a amazing to see that so many committed, dedicated Israeli Americans are coming out in full force. B really cool that this organization grew so much and is doing such great work, but also so incredibly funny because here you are in Austin, Texas at Allen's boots, buying a Stetson hat is like, uh, excuse me, do you have the boot without the pointy thing? I don't like the pointy <laughs> thing. It's like so great. Wait, this is amazing because the Israeli-American conference, it's not for Israelis and Americans. It's nope. Israeli-Americans. So here's That the is thing. incredible. It's for Israeli-Americans, but even more <laughs> interestingly, I realized as I was attending that in large part, it's for second generation Israeli-Americans. So it's for people basically like my children who are sort of at home in both worlds. And here's how I figured this out. So the flight to Austin left at, I don't know, three in the morning, five in the morning, some, some completely ungodly hour. And I'm sitting there on the plane and I'm totally groggy. When I hear like, you know that moment in Jurassic Park where the, the, the water cup like just trembles in the dashboard <laughs> yes. and you know that there's like a massive force of nature about to like devour you. You feel that? So I hear this and all of a sudden there is, I don't know what the correct plural noun is. What's the correct plural noun for many young women from Great Neck, New York? I, a a <laughs> kolbe, of, kolbe. <laughs> of, of young women, right? Yeah, like a, a gaggle, a gaggle of gals and, from GN. And, and they, they just march in and they're amazing. And their names, as far as I could tell, all started with N. It was like Nira, Neva, Noga, Nora, Nika, and Neta yeah, yeah. all get on the plane. And they're like so happy and excited. And I'm like, oh, wow, like. These are cool guards. It's going to be a great flight. All of a sudden, Noga gets up and marches right down to the freaking cockpit. I was like, this is like post 9-11 America. Like, we, we don't do, if we ever did this, like, now is not the time to do anything. Knocks on the door like, excuse me, pilot. Pilot opens the door. It's like, yes. She's like, um, I have an announcement to make. Can I have the PA system for a second? I was like, oh, my God, this woman is amazing. The pilot is so shocked. He's like, sure, here you go. <laughs> she takes she takes the PA system. She's like, 
Hi, um, first of all, I want to uh, wish Mazel Tov to my friend Nora who just got engaged. <laughs> Second of all, to everyone who is going to the IAC conference in Austin, we love you. I'm Israel Chai, baby. <laughs> I was sitting there absolutely shocked. I'm like, I want to adopt all these amazing children. They're like just absolutely fantastic. And the rest of the fight's like, uh, does anybody have a man for Nira? Nira is single. He really wants to meet a nice guy. Does anyone? Like, it was such an amazing fight. They had such great energy. And if that's the second generation, then not just the Israeli-American community, but the Jewish-American community is 100% safe. That's amazing. Amazing. It's what, terrifying what and amazing at the same time. News of the Jews. There has been a lot of talk about television on the show recently. I am so deeply grateful to everyone who wrote in, and, and that's many, many, many of you, with show suggestions. I have to say, since literally kind of all of you said Abbott Elementary was the show to watch, I binged the entire first season. It's an incredible show with a huge heart that I absolutely love. You're on a mission. It's cool to see. Thank you. Just a day in the life of being a teacher here. You get used to it. And that smell in the walls? Oh, no, you're never going to get used to that. Okay. So. so thank you, everyone. And I will get to all your other freakishly weird suggestions very soon. But Stephanie, our top NOTJ item deals with a very different show. Not a feel-good show. Not a show a, you love. Not a feel-good show. This past Friday marked the return, the fourth season of Fauda, the Israeli show that has, like, taken over our world. Um, Mazedoron. Mazedoron. So I was lucky enough to get to a screening of the first episode of season four with creators Lior Raz and Avi Isakarov. Lior Raz, of course, plays Daron on the series. The new season is back. And according to the Jerusalem Post, it is the most watched TV show in a sort of surprising country. Do you know what country it is, Leo? I am going to guess Belgium. No, though, there is a Belgium plot line in oh. season four, I will oh my say. God. Maybe now I should watch it. I know. Hey, um, you got to assassinate the Belgians. It is top of the charts in Lebanon. <gasps> huh. Which is fascinating. Of course, the sort of the beauty of this show is, is actually how popular it has been in all these other countries. If you follow Lior Raz on Instagram, which I highly recommend, <laughs> he's basically just like regramming where it is in the charts on all these countries. And it's like, Italy, number one, Fauda. And I'm like, oh my God, all these people in these countries watching Fauda. It's fascinating. Now, how do you think like, they watch Lebanon? this in, in Lebanon? Is it like a feel-good comedy in Lebanon? Is it like a cautionary tale? Like, you know, well, do Salim, we, do your homework so or else Doron come for you. Basically, for the people who have been living under a rock or haven't figured out who's Netflix password to seal, Fauda tells the story of this really, really, really secretive counterterrorism unit. It's part of like the defense ministry. Who's asking? Who wants it's, to know? It's not Mossad. It's, like, it's not Shimbet, but it's... It's not the Mossad. And the show is about like the human struggles and like the foibles behind the scenes. they basically dress up as Arabs and pretend, you know, go into Arab Yes, of course. So they're, yeah, so they're part of these units that basically go undercover in the Arab world. It's this really, really complex story. And like it's sort of like a workplace drama, but it's in the most high stakes workplace in the entire universe. But there are like a lot of funny and humanizing moments on both sides. And so I think that something about the show that they were saying was fascinating was just like how universal it's become. But yeah, I don't understand who in Lebanon. <laughs> what, right. in, what is in this? In Lebanon, you watch it be like, I don't know. 
are you my wife or are you Leora's in costume here to infiltrate the Lebanon society? <laughs> like, I would be terrified. It's also part of the plot line. Like Lebanon is in play as part of the, these, these plots that they're uncovering. I don't know. What do we think is going on here? It's absolutely baffling to me. First of all, if you live in the Middle East, why on <laughs> earth would you watch a television show about the Middle East? It's, it's like, like why I, I stopped watching like, Veep. I'd be like, uh, do you have Beverly Hills 90210? Even, even the new Beverly Hills is better than this. Like, why would you immerse yourself in this? Like, I can't even watch stressful high stakes show. And I live on the Upper West Side, <laughs> you know, like it's entirely baffling to me. But I'm very happy that it's successful. I'm very happy that you got to meet these guys. And now I wish to regale you with what I think should be the next absolute Netflix blockbuster television show. Ready for this? Mm -hmm. This is, again, from our beloved Jerusalem Post. This is about a man named David Rubin Thies. One of his grandfathers was a Nazi. The other saved Jewish lives by helping them escape the Nazis. And now he opened a synagogue in a hospital in Thuringia, Germany, which the Post reports looks more like a fancy hotel than a hospital. I think this is the feel-good body comedy of the year. Adam Sandler is the good grandfather. Kevin James is the Nazi grandfather. <laughs> and together, isn't that a great show in the making? Can and you then imagine? their kids get married. Oh my God, this is like the... It's the Christmas comedy of the year. They all get together. <laughs> it's Adam Sandler's house. He's hiding the Jews in the basement, right? And Kevin James is the Nazi. He's like, oh, I had such a bad day at work. This is a great movie waiting to be made. I love this. It's sort of like You People, mm -hmm. that new it's, movie that I think we should watch and all talk about here. We, we are dying <laughs> to watch it. One final bit of news. Speaking of television, there was this article in The New York Times about how American expats living in Paris just hate the idea of the show Emily in Paris. And like <laughs> Emily Cooper, who is like this, you know, over the top American in Paris, is like giving them a bad name, basically. And they're like, we've tried so hard to fly under the radar and to be this like effortlessly chic, non-American No, no, Parisian. no, we, we cool. We are nothing like uh, this <laughs> but, person. But the reason I bring this up is because it has an incredible correction appended to it. To be honest, probably the best the New York Times has ever published. Here's the correction. An earlier version of this article misstated the type of cookies included in the Emily in Paris menu at McDonald's restaurants in Paris. They are macarons, not macaroons. And, and this is a big, big <laughs> distinction. Macaron with one O is like the fancy French macaron, whatever you say it. And macaroons with two ends are like the Passover treat. I, I want to begrudgingly eat when no other form of deliciousness is available and to us on Passover. It's just so funny. <laughs> I don't know. I read this and I just cackled. I cackled and I thought Season the rest four, of you. Emily in Paris in Pesach. <laughs> she basically goes on a Passover retreat because she doesn't want to kosher her house. And all there's an offer. But also we're like Emily Cooper, as Mark would say, like that's one of the names that you're like, you might be Jewish, right? Yeah, like yeah, nothing's I've... Jewish about your character, like overtly in any way. And it never comes up. But I'm like, Emily in Paris would get McDonald's to get the macaroon deal. This is so chic. There's no grimace, no hamburger. What's a hamburger? Never mind.
Bill Derasowitz writes essays and cultural criticism. He's really one of my favorite, I'm going to use a dirty term, which I'm reclaiming here. He's one of my favorite public intellectuals. Some intellectuals are private. Bill is public and he is one of the best. He joined us to talk about his newest essay collection, The End of Solitude, selected essays on culture and society that asks the question, what does it mean to be an individual and how can we sustain our individuality in an age of so many networks and groups and social media and people urging us to be part of something? Here is our conversation with the one and only guest we call Bill D. William Jarezowicz, thank you for being our Jew of the Week. Oh, my pleasure. You're a productivity machine. I feel like it was just yesterday we were talking about your book of how artists and freelancers make it in the world, which is a book I've recommended to lots of my poorest friends. But the new one, The End of Solitude, Selected Essays on Culture and Society, is so you. And I want to pull a a few threads that just really intrigued me, that stuck with me. One of the things you talk about in, I guess you might call it the the title essay, The End of Solitude, is, is the end of boredom. And you talk about how easy it was in our day to be bored. And then you draw a distinction between boredom and idleness. What's the difference between boredom and idleness? You know, let's say there's a neutral state called not having anything to do. And you can experience that as a negative thing, and we call that boredom, or you can experience it as a positive thing, which Whitman called idleness, right? Whitman was all about just drifting down the street, letting the world come in. And it's a really hard thing to do if you've been trained to be bored, but it's an incredibly enriching and powerful thing if you can stand it. And I say the same thing about solitude. I mean, they're closely related ideas, right? If you can allow yourself to sit with your own thoughts, to sit in stillness and not constantly sort of take the aspirin of connection, right? The opioid of connection, which we mainly do on social media or the internet more generally or text messages or whatever with our phones, then lots of interesting things happen. Like what? Well, like you, for one thing, you can actually hear your own thoughts. You can actually find out where the world stops and you start. You know, sometimes those interesting things can be negative things at first. I mean, listen, and again, I'm also talking about myself. It's not like I'm preaching to others. I'm also preaching to myself. We have this incessant busyness now, this compulsive busyness. What is that business doing for us? Uh, One of the things that I think it's doing is enabling us to escape difficult questions. Like, are you happy with your life, with your job, with your partner, with yourself? It strikes me that connectivity not only makes you feel busy and makes you feel productive and allows you to tell yourself that you matter and connect you with other people, but it also can be a flight from having to look at yourself. And I, I'm thinking of a couple friends of mine who are both very averse to solitude and also very averse to therapy. And it seems to me the same, the same impulse. I mean, therapy in a way is a kind of enforced hour of not solitude, but reflection, reflection on yourself with, yes. with one other person who's often mirroring you back to you. Is that part of what's going on, that solitude is scary because you see yourself a lot in solitude? I think that's part of what's going on. But I also think that we've just kind of lost the idea that it even exists. I mean, the whole seed for this came up just accidentally in a course I was teaching at Yale, you know, back when I was a professor, like 15, 20 years ago. And a couple of my students said, like, well, why would anybody want to be alone? What could you do by yourself that you can't do with other people? 
often when we come close to solitude, there can be a resistance because there's, we sense that there's scary territory there, but more fundamentally than that, it's just like, when does anybody ever have a chance to do this? When does anybody even remember that it's a thing worth doing? But it seems like as long as everyone's on Facebook and has a smartphone, there's no hope. I mean, this seems like the most quixotic of battles. We'll get we'll get cheap and affordable good housing before we get solitude back. Well, first of all, I'm all about quixotic battles because somebody has to fight them. But also, I mean, I think this is true of all of my work. I think it's true of all of the essays in this book. I'm addressing the individual. I'm not a policy person. I'm not proposing systemic solutions. I agree with you that I don't think in many cases, that there are systemic solutions. We're not going to go back from smartphones, the internet, social media, like for the foreseeable future, this will be the human reality. So then the question becomes, how do each of us as individuals and maybe in some way supporting each other, you know, just socially, just as friends, how do we manage that? I watched TV like five hours a day when I was a little kid. Right. And at a certain point, you know, I managed to develop over years a saner relationship to television. And listen, the genre of, oh, my God, social media is eating our brains. We need to do something about it is about as old as social media. It's not an idle exercise, except when that's the only thing we do. And it's like the only way we deal with this is by writing and reading. No, you've got to actually make some choices in your life. This book is, it's not prescriptive. You're not, as you say, it's about the individual and it's really about you. And you're kind of talking about how to navigate these times. So you don't want to prescribe to people. But if you were to prescribe to people... Are there any disciplines or tendencies or practices that have allowed you to maintain some solitude? Maybe stuff that occurred to you in the past 10 years as you realized the world was kind of too much with you that you could share with other people who are saying, Jesus, how do I do that? I'll start with what we already said. Like I had the addiction when I first got on Facebook. I couldn't believe how great this thing was. And I became addicted. I I mean, not I think in the way that some other people have, but I definitely was scrolling for long periods of time. And I just had to step back and say, what is this really? I mean, in the end, it just made me feel empty, right? You don't even know where the last hour went. So I would say, and you know, last five or 10 years, this is going to sound really woo-woo, but remember that I live in Portland, Oregon. I started doing TM meditation a couple of years ago. You and my co-host, Leah Leibowitz, both TMers. I'm terrible at it. I can barely keep my mind on the mantra for like one breath cycle, but... Slowly but surely, it's helped me become more and more aware of just what's passing in my mind. And most of what's been passing in my mind for most of my life has just been crap. It's just stuff that isn't real. It's resentments, it's plans, it's, you know, I have the explainer voice because I used to be a professor, but I'm not anymore, so I explain things to imaginary people. And I try to remind myself to stop, to interrupt and say, is this thing you're thinking about, is it a real thing? You know, or is it just something you are imagining or projecting or whatever? And if it's not a real thing, I try to let that thought go. You're an ex-teacher. What do you miss about it? There's stuff I don't miss and I feel liberated from. And then there's stuff I already miss. And I'm curious if you miss anything about it. I miss it terribly. I mean, it's been 14 years and it's not emotionally such a presence for me. At first, I missed it terribly. And It's very clear what I missed. I missed having relationships with students. That's what I always cared about. I mean, I love the teaching part, the in-class part, that kind of vigorous intellectual conversation, but it was the outside of class stuff. It was the office hour stuff. It was becoming a mentor, becoming a friend, just, you know, I mean, this is going to sound sappy and perhaps even inappropriate, but like love is at the heart, I think, of a true pedagogic relationship. 
Not the wrong kind. Not exploitative kinds. Not exploitative. In any sense, but there is a kind that exists. and It's different from parent and child. And one of the reasons it's different is that you're not over-invested right. in what the student does. And, then, and, they, and they can tell that, and therefore it, it liberates them in a way that their relationship with their parents doesn't. And college students, they need at least one figure like that. And it's interesting because almost everyone I know, and I would include myself here, at some point in their 20s attaches to a wrong figure like that. And again, not in an exploitative way. They're just looking for models of how to be grownups. And their parents, they give you only finite models. They give you only one or two, or some people have three or four right. parents, step-parents. But then you're looking for five or 10 more. And sometimes you make terrible decisions. And you realize after a year or two of apprenticing yourself to someone in a workplace who you think is a professional mm. mentor, but more, but also a friend or an older person who you confide in about relationships or whatever, that they don't know, that they don't know anything, that they've screwed up their own lives. <laughs> and, you know, and then you, you kind of develop better taste in the people you seek out, I think. I think that's true. And I think at a certain point, you maybe no longer need figures like that anymore. Right. I never had that mentoring relationship in college. But when I went back to graduate school four years after college to study English, I was looking for mentorship as much as I was looking for a chance to read literature. I was looking for like a wise elder. And I found one and I wrote about him in that book, right? Carl Krober. I have a little memorial piece about him. Right. Your doctor father. My doctor father. That's exactly right, as the right. Germans say. Your doctoral advisor. Yes. Let me end on this note, being that it's a Jew cast and all. What does being Jewish mean to you at this point? You grew up pretty embedded in... Judaism. Right. Well, the, I think the very last piece that I wrote that made it into the book, it's exactly about that. And I talk about my Orthodox Jewish childhood and my progressive Zionist young adulthood, because it's really an, as, an essay about being part of a group and then leaving a group. As I think you know, I don't practice in any way and I'm not affiliated in any way. And yet I'm certain that I am as Jewish as I've ever been because it's an identity that's just planted so deeply within me, how would my writing be different if I weren't Jewish? Mm. It's a literally inconceivable question. My whole sensibility, my whole sense that writing of a certain kind is a vocation that's worth pursuing. I remember, you know, especially it was early in Portland and I had traveled this great distance. You know, my family came over from Eastern Europe to New York and here I am another continent away. And I just found myself in my office one day pacing back and forth with a book open, holding a book, with my graying temples. And I thought, I haven't traveled any distance at all. This is the <laughs> tribal tradition. This is it. I'm just a, I'm just a yeshiva booker from Minsk after, after all after, this. After everything, that's exactly right. You crossed one ocean, now you're at the other ocean, and still you've got your books with you, and you're just pacing back and forth. Um, what's your next book about? What are you working on now? You know, as a writer, I don't really want to talk about it very much. But that essay that I just described and maybe some other things have made me want to write a little more personally than I'm used to, sort of explore the possibilities of personal essay. I've always been afraid of that kind of self-exposure. I was in this progressive Zionist youth movement, Young Judea, yeah, which was really important for a lot of people. We had 3,000 high school members when I was in. Wow. So it wasn't small. And a lot of people have gone on to do some amazing things, both here and in Israel. And I think maybe that's a story worth telling. Like, what was this thing? It, it existed. I mean, it still exists. And it started over 100 years ago. But from 67, from the Six-Day War until about the late 80s, it was a very specific thing that did a very specific thing. Maybe some listeners who were in it or in other Zionist Jewish youth movements might have some inkling of what I'm talking about. What made me who I am? It was Young Judea. 
organized around an idea, organized around an ideal, giving you a sense of community, giving you a sense of purpose, giving you a sense of grounding and meaning, a sense of solidity as a self, as, a, as an individual. And also some separation from your parents, other role models. I think that's a great topic. I think it's a great topic for you. I think you're an authentic dude. And uh, thanks for being our Jew of the Week. Thank you. The book is The End of Solitude, Selected Essays on Culture and Society. Thank you, Mark. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a double header for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Tell me, tell me, in the day or the night, would it kill you to call or write? Friends, usually when we read the mail, we read all sorts of letters and we have some fun. But today, there's really only one letter that we want to share with you because it touched us so much. Here goes. Dear Stephanie, Mark, and Leo, on February 4th in the Philadelphia suburbs, my son Harry and I will be celebrating our Bnei Mitzvah. I want to ask for a Mazel Tov for Harry in advance of our event. In truth, I have no idea how the event will go. Harry is smart and funny and watchful and diligent and loving and kind, and I'm immensely proud of his study. He also has a profound speech delay and is on the autistic spectrum, and finding ways for him to learn, including for his bar mitzvah, has been a long journey. Anything could happen, 
Nothing could happen. He will do what he will do, surrounded by love and pride both in person and virtually. We know he has worked hard to learn prayers and Torah. For him to repeat the prayers took great patience and hard work. So I want to publicly say Mazel Tov to our Harry, because no matter what he does or does not do on his bar mitzvah day, like all mitzvah kids, he has done hard work and devoted his time to actively participate in his tradition and faith. That effort is worthy of praise and makes us very proud. I invite all of you to join us virtually because you have been part of this journey. Reading Tablet, which I discovered during the pandemic, listening to Unorthodox every week and appreciating your affection for each other despite differing views, sensibilities, and backgrounds was encouragement for me to continue to find our own family's faith in Judaism. We are an interfaith family. I myself did not have a bat mitzvah. To raise our boys as Jews, I feel it important not to ask them to do or consider important what I myself do not do or show as important to me. So I decided to be Harry's mitzvah partner and get over my own discomfort at not knowing all prayers or rituals. While not perfect, I am so proud that Harry and I made progress together with the loving support of my husband and our younger son. Mark, thank you for 13 in a Day, which I read and which resonated deeply with me. Liel, thank you for your book on Leonard Cohen for Dafyomi, which inspires me many mornings as I enjoy coffee, and for showing that political and intellectual diversity exists within the Jewish community. Stephanie, you embody so much of what I love and admire in my closest girlfriends. With your smart and quick, dry wit, you always make me laugh. February is Jewish Disability Awareness and Inclusion Month. I would love for you to shine a light on this and on the work of places like the Ruderman Foundation, our communities do so much wonderful outreach beyond our walls, but often need to do more to reach out to each other, to help those with a variety of challenges participate fully in Jewish life. I appreciate the tablet has often considered these issues among many others and hope it will continue to. Thank you all. Elisa Lewis, Philadelphia suburbs. Elisa, I'm, I'm not crying. You're crying. And we want to wish you and Harry the happiest not just a mazel tov, but the happiest, most wonderful, meaningful, and joyful Bnei Mitzvah ceremony. And I know that we will all be there, either in person, on Zoom, or in spirit. This is incredible. And we're so proud of both of you. Uh, this is really, really unbelievable. And thank you for including us and inviting us to be part of it. Our next guest is someone who I've listened to for hours and hours on end and wanted to listen to more. So I asked her to be on the show. She's Julia Whalen. She's narrated more than 500 audiobooks, including Gone Girl, Educated, and The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. She joined me to talk about her latest novel about an audiobook narrator called Thank You for Listening. We talked about the audiobook industry and we compared tools of the vocal trade. She was amazing. Here's my interview with Gentile of the Week, Julia Whalen. Julia Whalen, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you. I am so happy to be here. We hear a lot from people who are like, I feel like I know you guys because I listen to you every week talk. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I know you. Like It's weird to talk to you in person because I have heard your voice for so many hours narrating so many audiobooks that I've loved to listen to. So I'm like a little, I don't even know what to do with my feelings right now uh, <laughs> well, talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for that. I definitely do hear that from people. That is such an unbelievable 
kind of compliment. And that feeling that people have a connection to my voice and the way I tell stories, that like makes all of it worth it. So I never mind hearing that. <laughs> the human voice is a very intimate place to be with someone. I mean, that is so elemental and it is so fundamental to the way that we relate to each other. And it's not just a voice, it's an interpretation, it's a take, it's a performance. So it is a, it's, it's very intimate. Yeah. I think I first encountered you with people we meet on vacation, which is oh, something I, I listened to. that book. <laughs> Emily Henry book, I was deeply postpartum. I told you this when I asked you to come on the show. I don't know why I shared it then. I'm sharing it again. It was like the middle of the night and I'd be doing these like long nursing sessions and I was just listening, like your voice and you do all the characters and you have this like sexy man voice, which we will get to. Um, sure, sure. Let's get there. And then I was like, okay, I want, I want the next book. And I think I searched for your name in Audible and I just started listening to more books that you read, which is such a funny thing. And then I remember I was listening to Autumn because this was I was at this point I was like, my brain doesn't work. I only want to listen to now news stories, yeah. news articles being read to me, which by the way, I love Autumn. A U D M. It's the best. And then I was sort of like, I think she's here too. Like I was listening to some <laughs> like everywhere. New York Times. Yeah. And I was just like, <laughs> she's everywhere. So I'm not I can't be the first person to tell you this, right? No, but again, this is, I mean, look, you know, right now, to listeners can't see this, but we are Zooming and there's cameras on and you are in my booth right now and you can see how it is a very isolated experience. I do this by myself. There is no feedback. I don't have a live audience. I don't have, you know, so to, so to hear people say this back to me, like I said, it really is the reason that <laughs> I keep doing this. And I think what's, what's great about being able to do both, doing something like People We Meet on Vacation, which is so much fun and the type of book I love to read. And Emily is such a genius. And then also getting to do Autumn and doing the, my standing appointment with Susan Glasser every Thursday to do the Letter from Washington column for The New Yorker and to do The Times and the Atlantic. And like, I get to, you know, I come from like a very political family. Getting to activate that part of my brain as well is like so great. People have asked me like, well, what is it that you do? Like, it's not just, I think we have a concept of audiobook narrators just like reading the book, but it's storytelling elementally. Like, I think that's what it is. And that's what is connecting with people that we have a voice, we have a take. Quite a voice it is because I just searched your name in Audible and 472 results came up. Yeah. Is that the right number so far? It's actually more than that because some have fallen off. I've been doing this 13 years, so there's some that don't exist anymore. Thank God. And these aren't just random books, right? Like you got the Taylor Jenkins read. Like you have a lot of really, really popular authors. What are the things you're sort of best known for, would you say? I think Taylor's books. I mean, Taylor and I have been collaborating at this point for seven years, and I actually just went back and recorded the two books of hers that I hadn't recorded. Some of them are entirely me. Some of them is a, are a full cast, but I have been in every one of her audiobooks. The Kristen Hanna books, The Great Alone and The Four Winds, The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, also Educated, the memoir by Tara Westover, Going Way Back, Gone Girl, which was the thing that kind of put me on the map. I, I don't know. Sometimes I'm so, and then sometimes I get, someone reaches out and they're like, I listened to all of the Sweep series, which was this YA series I did way back in the day. And I'm like, that's amazing. And I like that all of our listeners right now are like, oh, I know who, oh, oh, I've, I've like, they've listened to one of those yeah. books you've just mentioned, yeah. right? I was so excited when your second book came out, which is called Thank You for Listening. Yeah. It's like the most meta thing I've ever, I've ever heard. And when I saw, it, I just was like, 
pre-order on Audible and I, I listened to you read it. So please, could you tell us what this book is about? <laughs> oh, thank you. That's so sweet. Yeah, this was me saying that I had to do I had to do something with the material that I'd collected over a decade of doing this job. It is about a former on-camera actress who, after a pretty tragic, scarring accident, has stopped doing on-camera and now just does audiobooks. And the one genre she will not record anymore is romance because she just doesn't believe in what romance is selling. But she gets like, it's kind of like that last heist, that one final heist (laughs) offer to do a romance book that she can't turn down. And in doing that, she gets very close, though anonymously, to her co-narrator. Because in especially in romance, we often record with a narrator of the opposite sex who's doing the other chapters. And she she has to decide whether she's willing to take a risk again in her life for the shot at happiness. And it is a story about self-acceptance and risk, making peace with where you are now and what you want in the future. But this, this came out of, you know, I was recording a lot of romance about 10 years ago, and I had a situation where I was doing a series with One of my best guy friends who is really like a little brother to me and I got him into the industry and then we were recording these just, you know, really graphic, (laughs) fairly mortifying romance titles together and the emails we were sending back and forth were just hilarious and my little screenwriter brain was like, oh, there's a rom-com here. Like if anyone knew anything about audiobooks, if that was even something that you could talk about, this would be incredible material. And then... Over those years, just watching this industry grow up and watching it boom, and suddenly there are audiobook fans, and people care, and it's a curiosity, and it just—the timing was right. By the time I finally sat down to write this story, it was—kind of had reached zeitgeist, like, part of the culture. And in Thank You for Listening, there are sort of, like, these fun alliances and rivalries among the big audiobook narrators. Is that based on— real life stuff? Like how dramatic is this world? We're actually, no, we're, we're so super chill. I mean, honestly, like this is, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not someone who ever like, I'm not a group person. Uh, I was an only child and like the concept of groups is just so bizarre to me, but um, I love everyone in this industry and it's because everyone is super cool, but there is a, just like in publishing in general, you know, the attention that goes to the big like literary doorstop novels or the big splashy nonfiction titles and then all of the people toiling away kind of thanklessly in genre are just always overlooked. <laughs> so, you know, that's that's very real, I think. Audiobooks are not just like CDs you slip in your car and it's like some boring voice reading you some big boring book. I mean, these are productions, these are performances and in many, you're reading multiple characters. So mm-hmm. how do you prepare for that? I mean, do you draw on your your own experience as an actor or is it sort of a, a different thing to be doing this? Not to be infuriating, but it's the answer is really like a little bit of both. Because sure, the fact that I have been acting since I was nine years old and I have a pretty full like tool chest at this point that I that I work with is helpful. But it's also a completely different experience in that I'm not working off of anyone else. So much of acting is learning how to work with other actors. And this is really more akin to like directing, frankly, where you have a larger overarching vision for the piece that you are setting out to execute to your specifications. So for instance, People We Meet on Vacation is a good example where I just loved that book so much when I read it the first time because there's always a prep read involved where I kind of create a constellation of characters and I'm writing down any 
biographical or vocal details that the author is giving them. I'm also keeping a list of words that I need to go back to the author for pronunciations on. But with that book, I just thought, you know, this feels like a a Nora Ephron movie. And what I wanted to do was, as a challenge to myself, I said, I'm not going to record a scene until I have staged it in my head. Like, I want to see that scene as if I were on set directing it. Mm-hmm. And that is how I did that book. So you're, it's like a one-woman show, basically. It's a one-woman show, yes. And then you get in the booth by yourself. Yeah. And this is why authors, I think that one of the turning points in this industry came when, you know, authors were just a little mystified by audio to begin with. And they kind of felt in a way that it was almost a competitive product to the print book. And now that it's kind of undeniably revenue generating, authors have had to pay attention to it. And the the ones who are true audio fans themselves get it. They are like, this is the narrator I want because they trust what a narrator does with a piece of material. You need to care because this is an adaptation of your novel. Like you would care if you were selling the film rights. Like this is the first front of an of adaptation of your work. Was it another Emily Henry book that you like teased on Instagram? You were like, what voice am I gonna use for the main myth like for the for the love interest? I, I think it was, yeah, that was that was a conversation Emily and I were having. I think it's this one. It was for book lovers. It was for the next book. And when I read this, like that character was just so off the charts sexy that I I sent Emily a text and was like, you, okay, that's it. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm going all out on this one. <laughs> and then when I, I asked her, I was like, should we post this to, you know, announce that I'm doing it? And she was like, please, let's do it. So. And people like really were as excited, I would say, about how you would inhabit that sexy male character. <laughs> they were. It's so funny. That's some of the comments that I get. They're just endlessly entertaining to me because it is such because I think that's one of the most off-putting things about audiobooks for people who, bef- like, when you're first getting started listening to them, is the switching between characters and gender. And, like, there's a little bit of a an uncanny valley effect for the uninitiated where they're like, this is the same person. And, like, I don't totally, I mean, it's not convincingly a guy, but it's like a nod to it. You have to you have to learn <laughs> the rules of the medium as you go. Right. But then once you have gotten used to it and once you're in and you understand the guardrails and the rules of the of the medium, then you can enjoy it in a way that like I get those comments that are like girls don't want boyfriends. They want men narrated by Julia. (laughs) Things like that, Uh, which is very sweet. That is amazing. But I also imagine it's weird because you don't get recognized like on the street, do you? Or like, no. I don't, my voice doesn't even get recognized because I have a very different speaking voice than a performance voice. So I don't get recognized, which is great. Like I did my time and on camera and um, that was the worst part of it by far. So like, this is perfect. I always like imagine that the best level of fame is like the fifth guy in Maroon 5. Yes. Who like has a lot of success. Yes. But like can go out to lunch and no one bothers them. Someone once said that was like, you know, oh, you want to be rich and famous. They were like, just try being rich first. See if that's enough. Can you, I know this is like very rude to ask someone to like do their craft unannounced. Could you like do an out of context sentence or line of something you've read recently, like without even telling us what it is? Okay, just open to page 102. Okay, open to page. The vulnerability surprised her, which was why it took her a moment longer to stand. Oh my God, I love that. And you're losing it. I'm there. I'm there. I'm like, you take me right back to like, I know exactly. Yes, this is amazing. And I think, you know, I wanted to ask you about like some craft secrets because 
there is something in Thank You for Listening that you say that the, the one way to get rid of mouth noise, I think it was yeah. is it to eat a, a Granny Smith apple, mm-hmm. a green apple. Mm-hmm. And I started doing that. I love that. So what else do you, how do you, how do you care for your instrument as someone who talks a lot? You know, for me, it's like a massive, it's just, it's a project in hydration. <laughs> I am constantly drinking water and tea. I think if it's different for everyone, like what foods maybe trigger them in it. Like for me, I really don't like to have dairy on days I record. I have to be very careful about like drinking the night before in terms of how, again, just it dries out your voice. And the main thing is just not doing as much as I used to do. I cap myself at two finished hours a day, which is about four to five hours in the booth of doing actual recording. And I used to do when I was doing 75 books a year, you know, I used to do like three and a half, four hours a day finished. And that's just and then I ended up, you know, on like vocal rest for a month. And you Mm -hmm. just you got to be careful. So this is your first time on Unorthodox, and as our Gentile of the Week, you get to ask us a question, something you've always wondered about those weird Jewish people. Um, <laughs> this is like a totally safe space. Anything goes. I think you have something for us, right? Yeah, this is, I mean, honestly, you're giving me such an opportunity, and I'm about to blow it, but here's here's my question. My concern always is pronunciation. That is, that is my job. That is my literal job. <laughs> and when I was doing... Um, Gene Hanf Korlitz's The Latecomer, which is a great book. It was about a pretty secular but Jewish family um, in New York. And there were a ton of, obviously, Yiddish, Hebrew, culturally Jewish words. And I specifically went to her and I was like, how do you want me to say these? Because I feel that like doing the proper Hebrew pronunciation is not right for the tone of this book and this particular family. So my question to you personally is how do you say T-O-R-A-H. Oh, that's a good one. Yes, because my husband, who comes from basically the same background as the family in The Latecomer, he has no discernible accent anymore, right? He got rid of it. But the one time it comes out is when he goes, Torah. And it cracks me <laughs> up. Like It's like I, his Jewish tell. It's, it is. I'm like, you're not passing anymore, babe. <laughs> so I... <laughs> it's That's such a good question. And it's, it's perfect. Wow. Okay, so I say... Wait, now, oh, now I'm good. Now I'm getting in my mm-hmm. head. I say Torah, which is like the like very, very, very assimilated way of saying yes. it. It's like saying like Florida. Right. Which means you're like from Long Island, basically. Um, <laughs> uh, people say Torah, right? That's mm-hmm. like Hebrew with the emphasis on the second syllable. Then there's, what does your husband do? Torah. Torah. <laughs> That's which a really good one. Just, that, that you can narrow that geographical, like you can drop yeah. a pin in that geographical That's choice. But whatever. <laughs> It's incredible. Oh, that's amazing. And it's such a funny word because you wouldn't say it a lot. So like you wouldn't have like, the opportunity to get rid of it. Yeah. Um, but it's like, it's just, I love that. I mean, every once in a while, Torah comes out. Every once in a while, I hear that. But like, I, it's mostly Torah and it kills me yeah, every time. Yeah, I think I say Torah, like Torah. And our producer's pointing out that you you also hear Torah, which is sort of like a more what? Yiddish version, which she's oh, spelling okay. like a T-O-I dash R-A-H, like the Torah, which that really throws me off. Yeah. Um, I also like that there's like aggression in Torah. Yeah, no, it's definitely like, like you're gonna what are you going to do someone? about it? What are yeah. you going to do about it? Yeah. <laughs> this this is the Torah. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> what were the other words in the book? Because I agree, like the Yiddish. Oh, man, no. I mean, there was there was a time, like, again, because a lot of this was in character, right? So we had like yeah. how certain characters would say words versus how, so like if you have a rabbi versus like the kind of shiksa wife versus like just the general narrative voice Mm -hmm. of the piece, the stand-in for the narrator of the book. 
it's one of those things where I don't want to start saying, you know, Torah in a <laughs> like as I'm doing like that's as that's you're a like bridge the character's eating bacon. Right. That's a bridge too far. <laughs> but that's just that's one of those that again, because my job is always so much like find the most common pronunciation or the most acceptable given like a specific culture or region. And that that one just every single time it comes up, I'm like, I you're like, it's Toira. It's Wait, Toira. It? I'm going to start Tora. saying that. And then I will, because I get angry letters anyway, like regardless. So why don't I Wait, just do wh- something about what? absolutely ridiculous? Oh, any pronunciation, people really feel the need to reach out to narrators and tell them that we pronounce something wrong. And what's hilarious about this to me is like, if you knew how much work goes into like the committee <laughs> decision of... I have to get approval from the author. I have to get approval from the publisher. Like the proofer missed it. The QC people missed it. Like sometimes, sometimes we make mistakes. It's a human industry. Like for now, we're we're wrong. But sometimes people reach out to me to correct my pronunciation, and I have to go back and be like, actually, you're not pronouncing it correctly. You are pronouncing it the way you heard from your parents at a certain time, and that's not actually the correct pronunciation. You're like, it's not actually Torah. It's not Torah. <laughs> I mean, maybe it is. There's really nothing you can say on air anywhere that people will not write in to correct you about. <laughs> yes. No, yes, of course. We're just, we're the way of correcting each other. This has been honestly a dream come true for me. Uh, <laughs> our listeners are going to get on Audible and, and of course, download you reading Thank You for Listening, which like I understand you wrote, there's a book version also, but like you go, you got to go straight to the audiobook. Why? Right. <laughs> Could you give us like, What's like a really random book from your catalog, from your canon that they could go find? Okay, I'm going to, I mean, yeah, that's, there are so, there are so many and I, I really wish I could. Um, All 472 available on Audible right now. I mean, yeah, there's like some that are just have really special places in my heart. But there's a book by Alyssa Friedland called Last Summer at the Golden Hotel, which is you know, former Catskills Hotel in all of its glory, finally admitting de- <laughs> defeat and closing. And it's a really fun book and something that, again, because of my my in-laws and like that part of my life, I have this very special awareness to where I think like people, yes, I'm, I'm definitely Gentile with the most Irish last name you could possibly have. But this is like this carved out piece of my heart is that culture and that that world that she wrote and then happened to just she just wanted me to narrate it, not knowing that I had this connection to that place. And so that's just that's one of those like magic of audiobook things. I love that. That is a very pandering to the audience response. But I I love Alyssa Freeland. I actually did not know you narrated that book. Yeah. Which I've read, but now I will listen to you read. Yeah. Yeah. Julie Whalen, thank you. I have to say like this is thank you for being a guest on Unorthodox. Thank you for all of the books that you've narrated, that you've written, that you've written and then narrated. You've been a part of my life and so many of, I imagine, our listeners' lives. And it's just a great pleasure and privilege to chat with you over Zoom. Oh, this was so lovely. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Mazel Tov's Stephanie, who deserves the most precious mazels? Yeah, this year's National Jewish Book Award winners were announced and Friends of the Pod really, really cleaned up. The winner of the Jewish Book of the Year is our pal Michael Twitty for Kosher Soul, The Faith and Food yeah! Journey of an African-American Jew. He was on our show talking about this. We love him so much. So all the mazel to you, Michael. And I wish to wish a very hearty mazel tov to another National Jewish Book Award winner, also 
former guest of the show, also dear friend of the podcast who I visited in person so that my kids could enjoy her amazing pastries on our recent trip to LA, Benedetta Guetta, author of Cooking a la Judea, one of the greatest Jewish cookbooks of recent time. So to the two of you and to all the other winners, a hearty mazel tov. And finally, a thank you to all the listeners who wrote in and called in to tell me what that thing from that TV show was that I was thinking about but couldn't place a few weeks back. Hi, this is Jess from Massachusetts. Um, I just heard Stephanie's question about where did she hear this Jew, no, say the whole word comment. It's from a Christmas episode of Community. The Jewish character is called a Jew and she says, no, say the whole word. Hope that helps. Thanks. Love your show. The joke about say the whole word comes from the first Christmas episode of Community. Allison Brie responds when called a Jew by Shirley, the actress whose name I forget. Nicole Yvette Brown. There we go. All right. Have a good one. Hi, Stephanie. It's Fran Richter from Scottsdale. The Jew, say the whole word Jewish, that's from a show called Community. I used that episode while I'm teaching my college students world religion and the diversity of religions and the respect for everyone. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Leah Leibowitz, together with Stephanie Butnick and Mark Oppenheimer. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. Our team includes Courtney Hazlett, Tanya Singer, Jaron Ruskay, and Sam Hacker. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Get our brand new swag. It is Fabrengen Amazing at tabletstudios.com. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem. Online at golemrocks.com. Mailbox theme by Steve Barton. Send us snail mail. P.O. Box 20079, New York, New York, 10001. Opinion supervision this week by Rabbi Robin Fryer Bodzin at Beth Seda Congregation in Toronto, Ontario. We come to you from the frozen Midtown Studios of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. Did you see the big news? Oh my God, did the multicolor push pins come in? No, well, I mean, yes, that is huge, but uh, I got two signups for After School Podcast Club. Oh, two. Two, wow, that, that's enough to tango. I cannot wait to get started. I'm picturing This American Life meets Pod Save America with the research of the daily, the storytelling of the moth, all while like redefining the form a la Radiolab. How many white podcasts do you listen to? Hundreds. I listen at triple speed, though, mm. you know, to fit them all in. Actually, this conversation kind of feels like it's in slow motion. But I am so informed. Uh.